Hi, I'm Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise Podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of scrambling to keep up with the demands of your own life, you're also caring for someone else in your life? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we hear from people just like you who share caregiving stories from the field, how you cope, what you've learned, and how care has changed your life. We also hear from professionals in the field of aging and people using media to address major health issues and challenge widespread assumptions about what it means to get older. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. It's no secret that women make up the majority of caregivers in the United States, but it may come as a surprise to hear that millennials make up nearly a quarter of America's estimated 44 million unpaid family caregivers. That's nearly 11 million caregivers who are ages 18 to 34. So how do millennials manage caregiving duties? What's different for them versus boomer caregivers, let's say? Well, we're going to explore all this and more with today's guest. Brandy Neal is a Los Angeles-based writer, editor, and content strategist. She's edited two anthologies. Her writing has been published in more than a dozen magazines and journals. And Brandy's a lifestyle writer for the women's website, Bustle, where a recent piece of hers caught my attention. It's titled, How to Care for Aging Relatives While Taking Care of Yourself. Brandy Neal joins us today from Los Angeles, California. Hey, Brandy, welcome to the AgeWise Podcast. Hey, thank you. Great to be here. So I read on your website that you came to L.A. by way of Toledo, Ohio, in Portland, Maine. How did you wind up in L.A.? Yeah, um, I was born in Toledo, and I lived there until I was about 25, and then I moved to Maine to uh, do a documentary writing program and ended up getting a job there working in newspapers, so I stuck around. I didn't really love Maine. I didn't love the climate. I have migraines, and it just really exacerbated that. So once I started working from home, I just saw an opportunity to live where I'd always wanted to, which was I'd wanted to live in L.A. since I was about seven years old. So um, I have a brother who lives out here, and I just decided to go for it. I came here in 2012 on Christmas Eve. How did you know it was Christmas if you were in L.A.? (laughs) I know, right? I did it. You know, I was driving the whole time and then I got there and uh, it was warm and LA is definitely a time warp you know you're like oh my gosh it's almost October but it feels like June right so you drove um, from Maine to California Southern California you drove yeah I actually was went home to Ohio for two months and okay. then I drove from okay. Ohio and with my dog and two cats uh-huh. and everything I could fit in my car so what prompted you to write this piece for Bustle I was approached by Molly Arnold, um, who started caring for her grandmother when she was just 14. Um, and as they've since, the family since started, started the Frank and Barbara Broyles Foundation. Mm-hmm. Her grandmother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and they, at the time, didn't feel like there was any information about how to care for a family member with Alzheimer's. And then just also being 14 and the isolation she felt, kind of leading a double life of caring for her grandmother, but then also you know, going to school and being with her friends and doing the regular teenage things, but not feeling like she had anyone to talk to about it. I could relate to that experience from caring for my dad and then going through the whole process with my grandparents. So I just, I think it's not talked about enough. There's not a lot of resources and a lot of people don't know what to do. So I just thought it was a good topic to 
get out there for people to start talking about. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your caregiving experience. I know that it began pretty young. You wrote in the piece that in 2008, your dad was dying from liver failure, and you and his sister were pretty much alone in caring for him. How did that affect your day-to-day life, and what was your life like back then? With my dad, things happened really suddenly. He was only 59, and he's a Vietnam vet Mm -hmm. with PTSD. He had stopped working and was just, at that time, basically drinking full-time. He lived in Arizona, so I talked to him every week on the phone, but I didn't, you know, I only saw him a couple times a year. And at that point, we had just kind of reestablished our relationship, like, within the past 10 years before that. He was absent for a lot of my childhood, Mm -hmm. and I got a phone call one night from my great aunt who said, like, your dad's in the hospital, you need to come out here right away. And the next time I talked to him, he just was really incoherent, and I couldn't understand anything he was saying. So I basically dropped everything and flew from Maine to Arizona. And when I got there, he had been moved from the hospital to a assisted living facility. And it was just such a shock to see him. My dad was somebody who was always, like, very fastidious about his appearance Mm -hmm. and he was married six times he was just very Mm -hmm. charming and he just looked like he was 80 years old his skin was yellow his hair was white Mm -hmm. and he just didn't know what was going on it was just really hard to see somebody that had always been one way to just suddenly be this different person and very quickly he started having episodes at the facility where like water was backing up in his brain and he was falling. So then we had to go back in an ambulance to the hospital. And I mean, they knew he was in liver failure and he was going to die, but liver transplant wasn't really an option because of his alcoholism. Mm -hmm. So after a few days in the hospital, they were kind of like, well, like there's nothing we can do and you can't stay here. So I'd never been in an experience like that before. You know, I'm like, well, I don't know what to do. Right. What are we going to do with him? You know, and my dad's sister was like, oh, you should take him back to Maine and he can live with you. That just totally overwhelmed me. I'm like, he's so much physically stronger than me. And he just kept not wanting to admit that he was sick. So even in the hospital, he was like constantly getting out of bed and falling. And that was just something I knew that I couldn't handle. Yeah. So we ended up talking to a social worker and she suggested hospice. Um, and they had facilities in Phoenix. So we ended up at a hospice facility. And then it's kind of the same thing there. Like, if you don't die right away, you can't stay. So then, like, two weeks later, we were in the same situation. So um, we ended up finding a group home in Phoenix that was basically just, like, somebody's house, and it was staffed with nurses, and everybody got their own room. So he stayed there for about a month, and then the plan was to move him up to Las Vegas to live with his sister. And he had kind of like, you know, he was good on the drive and he was, you know, asked my uncle like, oh, do you want me to do my share and drive? Like, obviously he couldn't drive, but Mm -hmm. he he was still like totally putting on this front that he wanted everyone to think that he was okay. But as soon as he got to to Las Vegas, he just collapsed and Mm. went back into a hospice facility there. And at that point, I had gone home. So then I had to, I flew to Las Vegas, which is just really surreal, like getting off the plane in Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. Casino and everything. And then, like, going right to the hospice facility. And he died right when I got there. Oh, wow. And my parents got divorced when I was three. So my mom was just kind of, like, offered moral support, but nothing else. And my brother at the time was a heroin addict. 
and he didn't want to get on a plane without his drug. So I just felt like me by myself with relatives I didn't really know. Mm -hmm. Um, I had probably seen his sister two or three times in my life and um, his aunt maybe once. So it was just really overwhelming to feel like totally alone. Luckily, we had military benefits that Mm -hmm. he didn't end up getting until he was in his 50s. But that helped us pay for the group home and packing up his apartment. And then also he got to be buried in the veteran cemetery and they kind of took care of all of that. So I don't know what I would have done if we hadn't had those benefits because I was working at a newspaper, you know, making like $30,000 a year. Nobody had any money. So that was really helpful. But just managing all those details and even something like breaking the lease on the apartment or um, turning in the car, you know, because those people are like, well, you have a lease. I'm like, well, he's dead. Like, what are you know, what do you expect us to do? Or the car dealer, like turning in the car early, like, well, you still have two more years in this. Like, well, sorry, here you go. Those little details, there was no will. So dealing with all of that, his sister was really helpful in that way. They all happened like very quickly, but just because I didn't live in the state. I mean, I first went out there in January and then he was dead by April. So it was Oh, wow. That's fast. Yeah. Well, so that was 2008? That was 2008. Mm -hmm. And how old were you then, if you don't mind my asking? I was 29. Okay. How did you cope? I mean, you must have felt really kind of alone. Yeah, I felt totally alone. And I didn't feel like I had anyone that I could talk to about it or relate to. I mean, since then, I have had family members, um, or not family members, I have a friend whose dad had early onset Alzheimer's. So she went through a similar process. And, but at the time, there was nobody really to relate to about it. And I was living with my boyfriend, and he didn't really understand and wasn't that supportive. And at the same time, like for the funeral, my brother ended up getting clean, mm-hmm. but he was on methadone. So we flew him out to Arizona, and then I had to drive him to the methadone clinic every morning. So I just felt like I was managing everybody else's issues and not really able to process what had happened. And I just kind of, after that, then you have to get back to your life. And I I think I just went through like a several years period of not really knowing what to do with the grief. I got married, which I shouldn't have done, and now I'm divorced. Mm -hmm. I started grad school, which was great, but I just kept myself like so busy, you know, like working full time, going to school, and just like doing as many things as possible to Mm -hmm. not have to really deal with it. And then just also not having the family support on my mom's side. Mm -hmm. It was just hard because... At the time, at that time, my grandparents were still, my mom's parents were still living on their own and hadn't declined. So even they didn't really know like what I was going through because they hadn't experienced that yet. So your work was interrupted and you were at that point living in Maine and you, I guess kind of the nature of your work is that you can do it from anywhere, but were you writing at all during that time? Yeah, I mean, at the time, I was a, an editor for a group of weekly newspapers in Maine, and that was also during the time when print journalism was really declining, so we didn't have news assistants, we didn't have receptionists. It was really like a job where I needed to be in the office at that time, but, you know, when I was out in Arizona, I was just communicating with my staff via email, and then I was also writing a lot of stories myself, so I would just be sitting at my aunt's kitchen table, like, at night, after I came back from the hospital, writing these stories, which I think helped me had something to focus on and get through it. Mm -hmm. Um, But after everything happened, I've written a couple essays about, you know, what happened with my dad, and I've given some readings about it. So that was helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you mentioned your grandparents, which you also wrote about in this piece, which was really so sweet. I love this line of yours. I'm going to read this for the listeners, and we're going to link to the article in the show notes. But I want to read this line from your article. And uh, this is from Brandy's article for Bustle, uh, titled How to Care for Aging Relatives While Taking Care of Yourself. She wrote, as a child, I always imagined that my grandparents would live forever. But as we get older, so do they. And for many millennials, the responsibility falls on them to take care of their aging relatives. But some young caregivers are struggling with how to take care of themselves at the same time. So you were struggling with trying to take care of yourself in terms of managing your grief. And then at the same time, around this time, was it around this time that your grandmom started to develop uh, the, her symptoms of what became Lewy body dementia. Was it around the same time that that happened? Well, shortly after my dad died, well, I just want to back up for a second okay. here. When I first went out to Las Vegas, I'm someone who never checks bags on planes. You know, I, uh-huh. <laughs> um, I'm always worried my luggage is going to get lost, but mm-hmm. I thought that I was going to be out there indefinitely, you know, so I brought so much stuff with me. I'm, they hadn't told me how bad it was. So I thought I'm going to get here. I'm going to be here for several months, taking care of my dad. And then he just died right when I got there. So that was just like such a shock because in my mind, I I was moving to Las Vegas. And then three days later, I came back home. And then two months after that, I went back for the funeral. So um, Hmm. that was just like an unexpected thing that happened. So Hmm. I kind of had to like redirect what was going to happen next. But with my grandma, so my grandparents are super strong people. I spent a lot of time with them when I was a child. My mom was a single mom and working all the time. So I would go on trips with them around the country. I've probably been to more than half of the states in the U.S. with them. We would go in my grandpa's van and drive around for two weeks. Oh, that's so cool. And they're super outdoorsy. Yeah. So I just never pictured them ever not being strong. And my grandpa had two forms of cancer, but he as many from his generation, didn't like to go to the doctor and didn't want to deal with it. And he actually passed out during my aunt's birthday party. Oh, wow. Um, I think this might have been in 2009. So he went to the hospital and they diagnosed him with skin cancer and he had colon cancer. So at this time, I think my grandma's symptoms were already happening, but she was managing them to the point that it wasn't that noticeable. I mean, she was really... Cognizant, if she didn't remember something, she would, you know, cover it up and say, oh, I forgot or, you know, I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. But when, when my grandpa got sick, which was really scary for her and we didn't know at first if he was going to make it, she really started to unravel noticeably at that time. She was having anxiety attacks and then the dementia just became really apparent. She was still driving, but she kind of stopped driving during that period. She was someone who always cleaned her house from top to bottom every day. She stopped cleaning the house. My grandpa disabled the gas on the stove because she would be cooking things and walk away and forget about it. Mm. He was worried about her burning the house down. She was someone who read a book a day and spent all day doing, like, crossword puzzles. She traveled alone, you know, like in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and that was not that common for women to do. Mm -hmm. It was just really a shock to our family to see that start to happen and at the same time we're dealing with my grandpa's getting chemo and radiation he had to have plastic surgery he got a colostomy bag so that was kind of all going on simultaneously Mm -hmm. and when did you start noticing the changes in your grandmother when did it kind of reach a turning point where you thought you know that's no that's not normal it started so in 2012 
my grandpa would go on this fishing trip every year in Canada with my uncle and my cousins. And previously, my grandma had always just stayed home alone. And he was going to go no matter what, because that's his thing. Not that he doesn't mm-hmm. care about her, but my mom and her sister, you know, were just like, there's no way she can stay by herself. Mm-hmm. So she went into a kind of like got an apartment in an independent living hmm. facility just for the time that he was gone. Mm-hmm. So there would be people checking on her. So that was kind of the first time that we actually had to step in and do something. Was she agreeable to that, your grandmother? Yeah, she was. She was, so she knew. She's she's pretty agreeable in general, but then she also will tend to agree with anything that my grandpa says. Uh So, I mean, this started kind of like a three-year process of, or two-year process of trying to get them to move into something like that mm-hmm. full time, mm-hmm. which she was agreeable to, but then he would always say no and tell her why he didn't want to do it. And then she would agree with him. Okay. <laughs> That's cute. How old, how old are yeah. they now? 88 and 89. Okay. She's 88. So they're both still living. I thought that they were, but I just wanted to confirm that. Yeah, they're both still living. And they're both living in an independent living apartment that you wrote was quite expensive. How are they managing to pay for that? So they, how, the reason that we got them in there was, so my grandpa would take every, the family out to dinner every Thursday to his favorite pub and pay for everyone's dinner. Wow. And there had been some incidents where, like, one time he passed out when he was driving on the train track and the police came. And also my grandma would be showing up in the same outfit every week and it was clear, like, that she wasn't getting a shower. Mm. So at that point, I had a friend who was a nursing assistant, so we were paying my friends to go over there and shower my grandma. And it just became clear that that was not sustainable for my grandpa to take care of. He just wasn't capable of doing all of those things for Mm -hmm. her. Mm -hmm. So they were on a fixed income, but they had both served in the Korean War. Um, He was in the Navy and she was in the Army. She was a nurse. Hmm. So there is a supplemental income for wartime veterans that Mm -hmm. can help family members cope with financial expenses. The place that they're living at now is almost $5,000 a month, and that's in the Midwest. Wow. Very expensive. Their house was paid off, so they didn't have hardly any monthly bills. So that was really worrying to my grandfather, and there was no way he was going to do it unless we could figure out a way to get it paid for. So So, um, um, just to back up for a second, they were living in a house where? They were living in a house in Toledo. In Toledo, okay. And and so the house was paid off, and so then they moved into the independent living apartment also in Toledo. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So my aunt had also been in the Navy and had experience dealing with the Veterans Administration. So my aunt and I went to a meeting, you know, initially to hear about these benefits. And generally, if you're before 1980, if you served before 1980, if you have 90 days of active duty and at least one day during a wartime period, you can qualify for this VA pension. So we started the process of that. And once that got approved, then we were able to like show my grandfather that this is how it would be paid for. And he was also very concerned about giving up his independence of, you know, he had a workshop in the garage and he liked to tinker and build oh, things sure. in there. He also yeah. had a garden. So just feeling like all of that was being taken away from him. So it was really important to us that we weren't putting them in somewhere like a nursing home or assisted living. So mm-hmm. this is basically, they have their own apartment. They can have their dog and their cat there. They have an outside entrance, but then there's also an entrance that goes into kind of like a communal area where they get three meals a day in the dining room. They only have a partial kitchen, so there's no stove, but there is a place to cook that's supervised. So if, you know, if people do want to cook and then it's extra for us to have a nurse come in twice a day to give my grandma her medication. And then to also, um, we have somebody that comes in 
twice a week to shower her. And so this way, you know, she's like taking her medicine, she's getting a shower, they change her clothes, she's getting fed. Before they had moved into the assisted living, she was really, really thin. I don't know how much she was eating um, mm-hmm. at home. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we didn't really have any visibility to what was happening when, like, when they were home alone. Yeah. So when was the last time you saw them? And how's your grandma doing now? How um, are they doing? So I, the last time I saw them, I was home for a funeral. And that's one of the other things that's challenging about dementia is one of my cousin's dads had died really suddenly. And my grandma is a twin. So it was my grandma's twin sister's son. And my grandma, her short-term memory is really bad. So she just kept asking like over and over again, what happened to Mike? Is, is Mike dead? And one of the things we've learned is, you know, you don't ever want to make the person feel bad for not remembering so you're just basically having the same conversation over and over again but so because a lot of the symptoms of Louis body dementia which I we had never heard of before Robin Williams and it's also it's the second most common form behind Alzheimer's but a lot of doctors will treat them the same though the Alzheimer's drugs can actually have negative effects for people that have Louis so Hmm. some of the things that my grandma has are like visual hallucinations confusion delusions trouble balancing, she has trouble walking, sleep disorders. So they had recently decided to put her on an antidepressant, thinking that would help pep her up or like give her some more energy. And that just had a lot of people with Louis body dementia have really bad reactions to antidepressants. So at that point, the hallucinations became crazy. Like she would be having full conversations with one of her aunts who had died before I was born. She was leaving the apartment in the middle of the night and the dog and the cat were getting out. And then, you know, my grandpa wasn't able to get any sleep because she kept getting up and running out of the apartment. So hmm. we took her Ugh. off of that. So it's just, it's hard. It's, um, my grandpa is still totally cognitively there but like physically not able to I mean it's almost in some ways like you're dealing with a child a toddler who is a full-grown person so it's hard to reason with them and also physically to try to if they're running down the hall or something get them back into the apartment my mom and my aunt they go you know several times a week to be with her and take her to get her hair done and things like that that's good so they're kind of bearing the brunt of it but it's really challenging and confusing and there's also not really a known cause for it because, you know, her twin sister doesn't have that. She's totally fine. But yeah. they think it's, it's environmental and has to do with the protein in the brain. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. if it's caught early, you know, if we had caught it right at the beginning, maybe there were things that they could have done to manage it better. But at this point, we're just trying to make like both of their quality of lives as good as possible. So your mom and your aunt, did you say, are more involved in her care? My mom and my aunt, because they, they live my grandparents by. have three, chi- yeah, my grandparents have three children, but my uncle lives a couple hours away. So my mom and my aunt are the ones, you know, dealing with it day to day. Uh-huh. Do you feel like the facility that they're in is adequate for her? I mean, because that's a big shift from when they moved in. Yeah, totally. I think it's working for now. There is an option to go a step up in care, but that's more money. Yeah. And it's probably out of reach financially, but Versus them being in their home, you know, if we hadn't had the veterans benefits, I can't even imagine how we would have, it would be handled at all because they would be in their house and she could be, you know, running around outside. Probably they would have had to move in with somebody else in the family. I might have had to move back to Ohio to help out. Mm-hmm. I just don't know how 
how people who don't have access to any help can handle it because it can really like take over your life, especially if you don't have people coming in to help you. You're oh, yeah. To be with this person all day. And yeah, if you know, like monitoring what they're doing and drive them to the doctor's appointments and make sure they're getting everything that they need. And that can be a full time job. And then just also like I know, I know with my dad, like I felt a lot of guilt especially when he was in the first nursing home, which I felt was terrible. Like I was like, there's no way he can stay here. I just, it right. just reminded me of the nursing homes I went to as a child where there's just two people to a room and it just didn't seem like a good quality of life to me. And mm -hmm. even though I didn't want to bring him to live with me in Maine, I was like, well, I can't leave him here. And there was no way we were going to like put him in a veterans hospital. So there's, yeah, it's just really hard to figure out what the best thing is. It's kind of like a Sophie's Choice. Right. You just kind of have to make it up as you go along. And there's really no easy solutions. So I want to be interested to know what you think about how your own care needs will be met. I know this is a ways away for you, hopefully. <laughs> but right. do you think about this? And, and, and has your experience changed the way you think about how you want your care needs to be met in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think I thought about it a little bit. But I really don't know. I mean, I one of the things that my mom and I talk about sometimes is, is this something that we're, it's going to happen to us or is it hereditary? Because when I just see the decline of my grandma from the person who she used to be to where she is now, I don't I can't imagine that happening to me and how I would deal with that. And I don't have kids. So I hope that there's something in place. I feel like that as a society, people are living longer, but we haven't kept up to meet the needs of elder care. And it shouldn't have to be this way that people are choosing between taking on caring for a family member or having to put them in, if you can't afford it, having to put them in some kind of state-sponsored care that's not adequate. I hope that by the time, if I live that long, that there's something in place that, it, that doesn't create this kind of difficulty. Mm -hmm. What are your biggest concerns to the extent that you do think about this what are your biggest concerns well I think having a will is really important because my dad did not have a will and we got something together and had like a notary come to hospice you know one of the last days he was lucid but mm -hmm. it was very basic and that caused some problems like him not having a will because he had some money and my brother and I each got some money but at the time my brother was a drug addict and we didn't want him to have this money because he was just going to blow it on drugs which is what happened mm. so if there had been a will in place with certain stipulations and how the money can be spent that I think that would have been a lot better and just also dealing with all those financial aspects I think one of my biggest concerns is what if this happens to me I don't ever want to go through that. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I would just rather, when the symptoms started, just peacefully pass away. I just I don't think that my grandma has a great quality of life. I mean, she's totally taken care of, but I don't know how much she's enjoying things. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's another topic, but I... Yeah, but that's a really important point to make. Extended life isn't necessarily the same as quality of life. Right. You know? I think if I was able to have a will and outline if X, Y, and Z happens to me, this is what I would want. I, I don't want to live that way. And that's something my dad had talked and I had talked about before he died, back when the battle was going on was to remove the feeding tube with Terry Shivo. And oh, mm -hmm. I was like, Dad, if this ever happens to me, like, take the tube out. I don't ever want to live like that. Mm -hmm. So, but I don't have anything written down, you know, like if something were to happen to me tomorrow, that says this is what I would want. 
Okay, so that's that's definitely that's on your to do list for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned your brother, and I'm wondering if you're worried about caring for him. Do you care for about for um, him? I mean, not do you love him? <laughs> you know, I mean, because right, right. if it were my sister who lives nearby, I would just be constantly worried about her. And so that's a form, that's a form of caregiving too. But I don't know what your situation is. Yeah, with your for sure. Um, he's doing a lot better now. He's that's good. been he's got you know at least a year of sobriety. He's oh, that's great. Living in his own apartment for the first time, and he's he's a DJ. He's doing well in his career. But for several years, I because what would happen when he would spiral out is that his phone would get turned off, and then you know a few weeks later he would have a new number. So. There was really no way for anyone to contact him. So Mm -hmm. for several years, I had him on my cell phone plan just so I could always reach him. And I actually just took him off it a few months ago. And that was just more like selfishly for me because in my family, we would always be able to like track the phone and and know, you know, if he disappeared or something like know where what was happening. Uh Uh-huh. So I have another question for you, and I don't know that you're qualified. I don't expect you to say, oh, this is how we all deal with it. But what misconceptions do you think some people have about millennials? I think you're actually in the Gen X category, it sounds like. Yeah, I think I'm an Xennial. Xennial. Like the word they're <laughs> X-ennial. calling people in the <laughs> middle. Yeah. Let's just say what misconceptions do people have about younger caregivers? Well, I think in general, misconceptions that people have about the younger generations is that they're selfish or entitled, that they only care about themselves, where I think in reality, I feel like millennial generation is probably one of the most socially aware generations we've ever had. They want to have a purpose. They care about the environment. They care about things like sustainability and how we're going to build a future for the planet. And then on the other side, I think also are very disadvantaged in the way that they've inherited this huge mess. I know for me personally, you know, there's a lot of, and I've written some articles about this, but there's a lot of people saying like, oh, it's because you're spending money on avocado toast or travel that you can't afford a house. But in reality, you know, the cost of living is so out of control and wages are flat. I personally don't think I will ever own a home. There's no way I could ever afford one in California or save any money because I just feel like everything I make goes to pay my bills. I have crazy student loan debt. It's just, they're just not set up for success. But I feel like as far as caregiving, you know, especially what I wrote about with Molly, I think they're very caring. And I also think there's a lot of people going through this. It's kind of how we used to think about depression, you know, where everybody was like suffering in silence because nobody wanted to talk about it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of millennial caregivers, but I don't think there's a lot of ways for them to connect with each other, Hmm. which I think can be really valuable if this issue was brought more to the forefront. You know, and a lot of millennials are raised by their grandparents. So like, they might be the ones responsible for caring for them and making these decisions. Right. So I think just shining a spotlight on the this is an issue and we can talk about it. Because if you don't know anybody that is going through that, people can't really relate. They can say like, Oh, I'm sorry, that happened to you. But you know, unless you've had to like drop everything and like go to another state for several months or even just in your own state, just move in with your relative to take care of them, you just really don't know until it's happening to you. And it's like you're parenting your parents, you yeah. know, which 
most of my life I had felt like I was parenting my dad, but this was really like a situation where I was parenting my dad and somebody who's much stronger than me and who, you know, and who would get out of bed or fall down, like I physically couldn't help him, which that also just made me feel really helpless. Yeah, that's a terrible way to live and a terrible thing to feel. What are you hearing from other folks your age, if anything, about caring for an aging family member or anyone and how they're coping? I think at first, There is some denial of, you know, people don't want to see symptoms or, like, think that they're going to have to take care of somebody. It is very overwhelming when you start to see a decline in, especially in cognitive function or with dementia when there's hallucinations and you realize that you have to start thinking about this. So I think that's hard because it does really rearrange your whole life if you're having to either, like, actually care for somebody or, like, facilitate how they're going to be cared for. And I also think like for millennials, like with my friend that went through this with her dad um, with Alzheimer's, it's just so hard to see somebody that had always been this really strong person in your life taking care of you have all of a sudden not know who you are. And maybe you don't even have kids yet, but you're taking care of your parents. So I think it's going to be really overwhelming and lonely. Mm. And also upsetting that we don't know that much about Alzheimer's and dementia and what's the best way to help people. So you're kind of going into a black hole of, you know, there's no cure and this might work and this might work and this might work, but having to go through all these different options and like what's best for that person and you kind of have to become your own expert. Like I know with my grandma, like, you know, a lot of times we'll be, because the people that see her every day are like, well, the doctor might be like, well, she needs to be on X, Y, and Z medications, but they're like, no, this is making her do this, and this is making her do that. Like, it's, sometimes it feels like the family members know more than the yeah. doctor. Yeah, I hear that. One of the things that I hear from people that I interview about their caregiving experience, and it's not the first thing that comes out, but there is some resentment for your life being disrupted. Did you feel anything like that? That's pretty young to have to deal with that sort of thing. Yeah, I felt a lot of resentment and then I felt very guilty about it because I felt, you know, my dad wasn't around for my most of my childhood. I didn't see him from the time I was 12 until I was 21. And I didn't feel like he had really been there for me and cared for me. And even before he went into the hospital, I felt like I was really emotionally caring for him. And I mean, I know it's not his fault and he has PTSD, but, you know, he would be calling me all the time and talking about his depression and talking about his nightmares. And I just remember thinking all the time, like, I just can't wait to get off the phone. And then when he got sick and I had to go out there and take care of him, at one point I was thinking, like, how long is this going to last? And then I felt really terrible for feeling like that because... I feel like being a Vietnam vet, you know, we came back in 1969 and PTSD wasn't even in the DSM until I think 1983. And then he went like another 20 years before he got a diagnosis and got benefits. And mm-hmm. I like, I have a lot of resentment too, because I feel like none of that should have ever happened. Like he shouldn't have been there. He was drafted uh-huh. and then they should have helped him right away. And all of that, you know, led to the point of me having to take care of him. And especially near the end when he didn't know what was happening, he would think he was back in the military and he kept giving his army ID number to the Mm. nurses. Oh, my. And Mm. so just was like just re-experiencing like being in Vietnam. And that was just really hard to watch. And his quality of life was so poor. So there were definitely times where I just thought like just, 
can this just be over? Like yeah. I wanted him to pass away. He wasn't going to get better mm-hmm. and it wasn't good for either of us. And I also just felt totally alone in that like nobody was there to help me. Didn't they have any counselors there? At his they, I mean, they had the social worker at the hospital and then there was someone that came in to talk to my dad at hospice. But no, there was, I mean, that wasn't offered to us. Wow. Did you think about joining a support group? I think I was just in such shock that Hmm. it happened, you know, after it happened that Mm -hmm. I just like jumped back into my life. And then I decided I was going to get married and I distracted myself by planning a wedding and starting grad school. And I mean, for like two or three years, I kept myself busy pretty much 24 seven, just so I didn't have to deal with it. And then there, I also wasn't really able to talk about it with my mom because you know, after they got divorced, and then when he disappeared when I was 12, I don't really feel like there was a lot of forgiveness there. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, um, yeah. even though, you know, she was sorry that he died, I didn't feel like I had anyone to talk to about it. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I didn't really know anyone whose parents had passed away. So I think that, you know, if your people whose parents passed away when they were young or something, they, they probably had an adult helping them. Um, yeah. Right. navigate through that or getting counseling or whatever. I mean, I did start seeing a therapist when I got divorced, mm-hmm. but that, you know, that was maybe three years after my dad died. But I just went into the denial stage of grief, like full force. Uh-huh. Did the, the therapy help? Yeah, it just, you know, it helped me like process the feelings of guilt. And I also, I wonder like with my mom and my stepdad, because that is something I think about too, what's going to happen when they need to be cared for. Right. And I have four brothers, but I do feel like it's going to fall on me. And so that is definitely like in my head all the time. Hmm. So, I, you know, I kind of feel like I already did this. And I'm definitely the person in the family who's like the fixer and uh-huh. kind of takes care of things. So, uh-huh. How many siblings total? So I have two brothers and two stepbrothers, but I actually only grew up in the same house with my younger brother. Okay. So I think it was really cute. I read on your website that you're taking care of a special needs dog who has to eat all of her meals in a dog high chair. I think people would be really interested in hearing about your special needs dog. Yeah, so um, my dog has megasophagus, which is a disorder where the esophagus is basically paralyzed, so they can't swallow food unless they're in an upright position. Oh, megasophagus? Is that what it's called? Yeah, like mega... Mm -hmm. And then the word esophagus. Okay, megasophagus. Oh, I've never even heard um, of that. And yeah, Aww. it was, they used to just recommend that those dogs be euthanized because they didn't think they would have any quality of life or be able to get nutrients. And somebody invented this thing. The first dog that I think kind of started this whole, the whole megasophagus conversation was named Bailey. And somebody built what's called a Bailey chair, which is the dog high chair. Oh, um, it's like so a little, <laughs> kind of like a little box that, my dog gets in, and her name is Bibi. And um, Phoebe, Bibi. Like oh, Bibi. B-I-B-I. Okay, Bibi. Right. And I adopted her from Puerto Rico. She's. Hmm. There were some like signs on the adoption papers that you know don't give her water like 30 minutes after she eats because she will regurgitate. But it took me four vets to get a diagnosis. And hmm. um, what can happen is like the food can just end up like pooling in their esophagus and then they regurgitate it so they don't get any nutrients. And the other thing that can happen is they can aspirate food and water into their lungs and then they get aspiration pneumonia, which we went the first four years without having any of those incidents. And then in the past few years, she's had it four times, but each time she's recovered and she's super bossy. She's very... <laughs> 
hyperactive. She's a total extrovert. So she doesn't know that anything's wrong. She's a beagle, so she's very food motivated. So she loves getting in the chair. <laughs> food motivated. It's um, great. But yeah, she has to wear like a blow up collar at night to keep her head elevated or else there's like a lot of regurgitation at night. And that's really, I feel like that really, luckily I work from home, but that limits me a lot because I can't just leave her with anyone when I travel because I need somebody to understand the care. It's also crazy expensive. Just if there is, yeah, if there is the pneumonia, we have to get x-rays. So every time we go, you know, have to go to the emergency vet or something, it's like ends up being like five or six hundred dollars. So that can be really challenging. But oh, wow. yeah, she's a great dog. You know, she doesn't know that anything's wrong with her. I clean up a lot of regurgitation and vomit. <laughs> so. so you're a primary caregiver for a special needs dog. Yes. That's so cute. How long have you had her? Um, I've had her for six years. Okay. Well, that's devotion. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, I don't want to keep you on the phone for too much longer, but I want to ask if you have any last thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners with. Yeah. I just think that, you know, caring for a family member can be a really complex and emotional situation and a lot of feelings are going to come up that you might not um, be prepared to deal with like guilt or resentment which I wish somebody would have told me that that was totally normal and I think you know getting help from a support group or a therapist while it's happening probably would have been really beneficial for me but I just it it just wasn't in my um, consciousness at that time so if I could go back and do it again I definitely would have uh, sought out that kind of help and I just think we need to keep talking about it because obviously we're all going to get older and be caring for parents and grandparents and then going to need to be cared for. And if if something doesn't change in the way that our medical system works, I just don't think this problem is going to get better. I don't think it should be a problem. I feel like the way that we treat elderly people in our society is kind of shameful. And we need to make sure that we're taking care of the people that took care of us and that, you know, help build our country. Brandy Neal. She is an LA-based writer, editor, and content strategist. We're going to have a link on the AgeWise website to Brandy's piece for Bustle, titled How to Care for Aging Relatives While Taking Care of Yourself. And we'll also have a link to her personal website where you can check out more of Brandy's work. Brandy, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate your perspective. It was great chatting with you. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great chatting with you, too. That's it for today. Thanks for supporting the AgeWise podcast by listening. If you or your company would like to take this a step further and sponsor the show, just drop a line to sponsor at agewise.com. That's sponsor at agewyz.com. And let's talk. The AgeWise podcast is produced and mixed by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I'm Jana Panaritas. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.